G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. And welcome along to a special focus on last night's federal budget. The Treasurer Josh Frydenberg handed down a post-COVID-19 budget. The bottom line is buoyed by strong revenues from soaring company and personal income tax collections as the government tries to turn around the collapse triggered by COVID and the prevailing international pressures. The Treasurer was quick to point out that Australia has survived the economic ravages of COVID-19 better than other advanced economies. But we are still in the red. The budget deficit for the coming year, $78 billion. And Australia's gross debt tipped to hit a trillion dollars next year. It is a pre-election budget and the opposition leader has described it as having all the sincerity of a fake tan. Well, two guests joining us to unpack the issues in the budget. Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth With Purpose, the founder of Wealth With Purpose and helping to equip Christians to honour God with their finances. And Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth, based in Melbourne, where he's a senior financial advisor. His business model is founded on the idea that a person's true worth isn't measured by financial net worth, Rather, that the individual is of inestimable value. First of all, a welcome along to you, Alex Cook. Thanks, Neil. Great to be with you guys. And uh, Gavin Martin, welcome along. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Great to be with you. Gavin, let's start with you here and perhaps a general overall perception of last night's budget. What comes to mind for you? (coughs) I see it as a tightrope budget where the government is really needing to strike a balance between budget repair on one side and easing the cost of living pressures on the other side without uh, unduly fueling uh, inflationary pressures uh, whilst at the same time trying to win an election uh, and not putting too many um, sweeteners in there that are seen to be specifically buying votes. Um, so yeah, a bit of a fine line to um, uh, to walk, uh, but it seems like it, they have managed to uh, balance those two, uh, or the competing interests, uh, well, so far in the feedback from, uh, from what I've read in the media. Alex Cook, your overall perceptions. Yeah, look, very similar to Gavin. Um, I guess the comment I'd make is the government is particularly trying to send a message, I think, with this budget uh, that we care. Um, you know, the cost of living pressures, as Gavin highlighted, is front and centre for most people. You know, every time they hop in the car and head down to <laughs> fill up, you know, they, you know, it's very, very noticeable now. And of course, it's flowing through into goods and services and other parts of the economy. And so the, the government is very much trying to say, hey, look, we care, we, we're going to do what we can to try and ease that pain. Um, of course, that's a real challenge because a lot of those uh, pressures are actually coming from offshore, things that are actually uh, beyond their control. 
Um, the concern, though, that I see when I see um, you know budgets like this, and certainly the trend really since 2008, since the global financial crisis, is that as a country, we're now sort of following <laughs> the United States and Europe with these sort of deficits forever. Um, you know, as you pointed out, you know, I think a deficit this year, something like $79 billion. But basically, it's assumed that the deficits will continue until 20, 2033. So we're looking at another 11 years of deficits. That's at least. And of course, that also assumes uh, that everything remains rosy in in the world. And of course, things aren't rosy and there's a lot of pressures coming out of... Um, you know what's going on in the war and the and the impact that has on energy and food prices. So I think the concern I have is just that we're now getting into this uh, cycle of just never-ending deficits. You know, I I remember the days <laughs> under Peter Costello when Australia had no net debt. Now they achieved that through a mining boom and through selling off of public assets like Telstra and so forth. But nonetheless, I, I do have this concern about this this never-ending growing debt because obviously the bible uh, talks to us a lot about debt uh, and it warns us that it can lead to to slavery now we're as a nation at the government level we're nowhere near that um, at a household level they we are in a very precarious uh, position with the most second most indebted households on earth and so i think this pattern we really need to get out of this pattern of forever growing deficits of course, the government would argue very simply that, hey, we're doing this uh, for your good because, you know, we don't want the economy to slump, you know, after COVID. And of course, now the cost of living pressures from overseas events as well. So, look, it's, it's, it's tough for them. And of course, as Kevin said, they've got to get re-elected too. And that's always uh, top of mind, I think, on any politician, no matter what their stripes are. It is a pre-election budget and there is this feel-good effect from it because there's lots and lots of handouts and because those revenues have been on the rise, perhaps there's this feeling that, well, there's a little extra to spend here. But that's in itself is a little bit of a contradiction because uh, when you talk, Alex Cook, about never-ending deficits and a rising national debt, uh, the thought that you can just spend freely, uh, that, that does, in fact, somehow or other rub up the wrong way. Gavin Martin, when we talk about a feel-good effect from a budget like this, uh, I mean, as Christians, uh, we'd like the feel-good effect as well. But going a little bit deeper than that, there are some things here that maybe are not uh, being attended to. Any thoughts here? Uh, yeah, I don't know whether it's necessarily a feel-good um, uh, expenditure, but lessen the pain uh, uh, type of um, uh, cash hand, handouts. And um, but they are very short term in nature. So the four hundred and twenty dollars um, that was announced as part of the uh, low and middle income tax offset—that's an additional four hundred and twenty dollars on top of what was already a thousand and eighty. So you could get a, a maximum of fifteen hundred dollars in um, in tax back once you submit your tax return at the end of the um, at, at, the, at the end of the financial year. Um, uh, but it's that that then that whole fifteen hundred dollars um, is going to stop. Uh, so next financial year you'll be. $1,500 worse off than what you were this financial year. Uh, so it is short-term in nature. Um, from a political perspective, I guess they're suggesting um, that it was a uh, part of a stimulus uh, out of 
coming out of COVID and it does need to stop. And uh, if they didn't, it would uh, help. Uh, it would cause the budget repair to be slowed down as well. But yeah, short term nature of the of the measures. Um, I think it's I think it's right uh, to to do that. Uh, but it is a yeah, it is short term when you're thinking about uh, the longer term uh, pressures and uh, on cost of living. Alex Cook, relieving cost of living pressures. I mean, there are an awful lot of people who have been hurt. Uh, whether they've been employees or small business owners, uh, people in our community, those who are in a vulnerable position. So the government actually uh, being generous, relieving cost of living pressures. Is this something that we can celebrate as as a, a Christian commentator? What do you think? Yeah, look, I think the, certainly the intent is right. You want to you relieve the pressure as, as much as you can. Uh, in, in saying that, like Gavin said, I think a lot of the things they've done are short-term in nature. I would have preferred to see things that are structural in nature, so things are going to last. You know, whether it's you know tax cuts are going to be passed through for the longer term, or you're spending on things that are going to actually make a sustainable difference to the the real economy over time. So you're spending in areas that are really going to help us to grow and develop as a society, which to be fair, they have done. So they want to spend uh, more money in training. So they're basically giving small businesses bigger deductions there so they can train more. So that has a positive long-term effect, I think, on society. But in terms of the cost of living pressures, you know, $250 uh, let's be honest, that would be spent, I think, very quickly by most people. So it doesn't, it's not going to last long. And I guess what we don't know is how long some of these pressures are going to last um, that are coming from offshore. How, how long are these things going to drag on for? I suspect possibly for a while because a lot of them are, you know, supply chain issues, <coughs> excuse me, and that uh, they are really going to, they could drag on potentially for years. And, and this, this war particularly also has the potential, I think, to degenerate. I mean, there's some positive news about it at the moment in terms of peace talks. But if it were to degenerate, that would have a massive impact on the slowdown in the global economy. Uh, and certainly when you look at um, uh, some of the flow-on effects of what the US is doing with their sanctions, it is going to really... I think we're heading into a big transition around the globe, you know, a real you know, shift you know, people often use the term the world order. And so Australia's budget is going to be hit by those things to the extent that we can't really control it. So look, by all means, we do need to help out people as much as we can. Um, but I think I would have preferred to see more sustainable things as opposed to these short-term cash hits. Um, because those short-term cash hits, of course, do smell a bit in the sense of being about votes as opposed to having any sort of meaningful long-term impact uh, for the greater good. So these short-term injections, uh, you know, vote-buying opportunities uh, perhaps, uh, but certainly relieving cost-of-living pressures, uh, these uh, are there are concerns around this sort of stimulus that somehow or other it might be counterintuitive, that it actually contributes to the inflation pressures that might put more pressure on rising interest rates. Uh, Gavin Martin, do you think that somehow, you know, this uh, uh, vote, vote buying might actually be contributing to something that might be a, a hard hit uh, just down the track a little further? Yeah, definitely that is the balancing act. The argument would be that um, uh, it, it is uh, short-term in nature and, fo- and by focusing on fuel prices, like the halving the excise tax, um, uh, 
that will in itself reduce the input cost to so many other items. So uh, transportation costs of goods between, uh, and Australia's a large con uh, country, so transportation costs will reduce the overall cost uh, to other inputs. So uh, in that respect, uh, the, uh, the excise uh, halving, excise tax halving is actually uh, deflationary uh, to a degree. Um, the other stimulus, uh, so the $250 payments to Centrelink uh, recipients and the $420 increase in the low income, uh, low and middle income uh, earners, um, they're probably more stimulatory, but also addressing the, 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 the cost of um, the cost of living. So, um, yeah, I guess those two things balance each other out. Uh, but definitely the fuel excise is um, uh, reduces, uh, has a lessening on inflationary pressures. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, a different sort of commentary on last night's federal budget. Welcome along. We are having our own debrief uh, with Christian commentators around last night's federal budget. You can contribute. You might have a question or a comment or even a critique. 1-800-316-316. To join in our conversation today, our two special guests, Alex Cook, of Wealth with Purpose, and Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth. Let me just touch on some of the things we've begun to discuss. Uh, the thought that this is a pre-election budget, that there are sweeteners in there for uh, lower income earners and middle Australia, and uh, the suggestion that somehow or other this is a vote-buying exercise, the thought of bribing voters. Uh, Gavin Martin is it fair enough to say that as a Christian you might be a little concerned about the uh, the way that uh, that votes might be being sought to be bought, although both sides would do likely the same thing? Yeah, definitely. It, it is seen as that. And I, I guess that's what the opposition is currently uh, suggesting, that they're just buying votes by handing out cash. Um, but there are others uh, and who have identified other similar types of issues of, of um, doing deals in the background to get things done. Uh, and one of them that was referred to by um, Jacob Greber of the Australian Financial Review was all the infrastructure spending, and in particular the regional infrastructure spending, which totals around $17 billion, but could be as much as $34 billion, is a deal done between um, Barnaby Joyce and Scott Morrison in order for Scott Morrison to sign up to the 2050 net zero um uh, back in 2021 and uh, so he's made that link there's no way you can actually prove that but it's just seeing the regional expenditure um, and the and um, the negotiations that um, Barnaby Joyce communicated that he was in wanting to uh, make sure that uh, regional Australia uh, benefited from uh, from that so yeah just call it a deal call it a Call it a bribe, I'm not sure uh, how you see that. <laughs> and somehow or other, we might not ever be privy to how those uh, backroom deals happen, uh, although uh, there is an election coming up and uh, there are some criticisms that perhaps uh, some of the big spending on infrastructure might have gone to uh, electorates that are in perhaps uh, marginal seats or uh, trying to maintain the government's uh, lead when it comes to uh, the election. Uh, your thoughts on this whole issue of bribing voters, uh, Alex Cook? 
Well, the funny thing about politics, I think, is uh, uh, it exposes human nature on a very grand scale. I mean, uh, if you ever want to see proof that the Bible is true, and it's comment commentary on uh, human nature and our sinful nature, politics, I think, is a great way to expose that. So look... Look, what's going on is absolutely nothing new. It's um, the I think one of the, the things in in Western society is it is very short term in nature. Our political cycle, I think, is problematic. It's too short, uh, and as a result, you don't necessarily get a lot of long term thinking. Uh, there's an argument in certain other you know political ideologies in other countries around the world where they do have longer cycles, or there's you know one party in power for a very long time. That also has other problems of its of its own. But I think. The reality is that our political cycles are so short that you do end up with this kind of, um, you know, vote buying. It's been going forever. I remember, you know, John Howard with the baby bonuses and all these sort of things. It's 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 not new. Um, would it be better if it didn't happen? Yes, uh, because I think as a nation, uh, we've been sleepwalking for a long time. Uh, into big structural issues going forward. You know, we, we know we've got the ageing population. We know we've got uh, the growing debt issue, particularly household debt, I think, is a real long-term tinderbox. Uh, and so all these sort of things, I think, are largely being ignored because of the short-term nature of our political cycle. So if that were to change, I think that would be, a, that would be positive for all of us. Uh, and I think ultimately... Um, as a Christian, my sort of position on how we should be and why we should be praying so much for politicians and our government is, is just a simple fact that we want to see policies that enable human flourishing. We want to see policies that enable people to get ahead, to look after their families um, and for our society to do well and flourish. And I think one thing that has certainly happened over the last uh, really 20 years um, with this, particularly with the, the housing situation and so forth, is we do have a growing inequality in Western society. And of course, social security has been expanding massively over, over that uh, you know 20 year period. And so we do have now a growing portion of society that has been left behind. And I do think that represents big social issues going forward and hence the need to move back to a society which has a bit more of that long-term focus we don't focus so much on the short term and just giving out handouts here and there but we actually create long-term structural change that benefits all of us allows people to get ahead doesn't allow inequality to get out of hand inequality in and of itself is not a problem but if it gets wide and um, becomes very unfair like it is extremely like in the u.s um not nowhere near as bad here but certainly on that path so we need to get rid of that short-term nature and focus on long-term policies that enable our society to flourish. And that's what I'd like to see change. You know, those thoughts around human flourishing, this is where Christians have a real impact in the sort of commentary that we might bring here because, uh, interestingly, because we're talking about, uh, you know, cash handouts and such things, and the thought that material wealth might be the solution for our human flourishing, in fact... Uh, the likelihood is that there are issues of the heart uh, that are at risk there that don't really come to light with the sort of issues that you might uh, talk about in a budget, although uh, there might be funding for things that actually do improve issues of the heart. But there are challenging things there. And uh, Gavin Martin, just uh, if you've got a, a final thought here before we move on, because uh, when we talk about material wealth, that's not the answer to everything. Uh, issues of the heart are important too. 
Oh, yes, definitely. And um, money, and when it comes to dealing with money, uh, is a reflection of our heart as well. You can look at your calendar and look at your checkbook, and that will give you a great indication of what your life's about um, and, and so where you're directing your time, where you're directing your money. And uh, yeah, actually, whilst we're focusing on the budget here, um, it's really about um, who we're living for that's the more important thing. <coughs> Uh, let's come to wages. Uh, wage growth in Australia has been sluggish for a long time and there are inflationary pressures now and there's connection there. Alex Cook, any thoughts around uh, inflation and the possible effects there on wages? Mm. Well, as you say, wages have been very sluggish for a long time, like over the past 10 years. But it hasn't been too big a problem because inflation, of course, throughout that time has also been very benign. Uh, but what happened with COVID was simply the fact that immigration into Australia essentially stopped. Um, and the positive thing about that is Australia has been importing cheap labour, predominantly for big business and for agriculture, for, for quite a long time. And of course, now the reason why we've got such low unemployment is because you, you've just had a massive drop in, in the level of immigration. So that's actually given <laughs> the, the government sort of bragging rights, if you like, because of this low unemployment. But that low unemployment, of course, has led to a bit more wages growth. So this year they're forecasting it to be at about 2.75%, which is much higher than what it has been. But here's the problem, and the problem is that inflation this year, the most recent figures were 3.5%, but now they're saying it's going to get to roughly 4.25 um, before dropping off next year. Um, now, the problem, of course, is if you've got wages growth at 2.75 and inflation at 4.25, the average person is still going backwards, which is why things like, you know, Gavin mentioned before, the excise tax is so important because it is deflationary in nature and that of course helps take the pressure off uh, people's cost of living if they're not seeing it through their wages. Um, <clears throat> however, the concern I would have for wages going forward is firstly, a lot of these inflationary pressures are coming from offshore. They're due to things like, um, as I say, supply chain issues. Uh, they can't necessarily be quickly fixed nor can the Australian government necessarily have a great deal of control over them. Because normally with inflation, you raise interest rates, but that's not going to change a supply problem that's coming from offshore. Um, also, in New South Wales, you've had Dominic Perrottet, when he first got elected in, what, September, October last year, he said he wanted to bring in 2 million immigrants into New South Wales in the next five years. Now, that, if he does that, and I don't know if he will get that many people in, but if he does, that will suppress wages growth. So you could have a situation where you've got more and more people coming in, wages push downwards, but inflation staying high. So we could have like a kind of stagflation scenario where you've got kind of low growth, um, but higher prices. And that will be very frustrating, I think, for many people. And the cost of living pressures won't be eased if that's what happens. So watch this space. So uh, cost of living on the rise uh, means uh, everything rises, uh, including potentially wages. And uh, with employment at uh, 4%, uh, the, uh, the likelihood is uh, that, uh, that there'll be opportunities in all of that. So uh, opportunities, Gavin Martin, uh, for people to either uh, move into a higher wage in their own career path or change jobs altogether and do something completely different. There's all sorts of talk about around those sorts of things happening. Any thoughts from you? 
Yes, I think it's just a matter of uh, every, everyone trying to focus on what their opportunities are. And um, I've seen it in my own business where we have admin uh, support uh, and we pay them the, the award rates there. But then they can um, equally work for the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and maybe get more per hour um, uh, over there. So you can just, uh, I guess every individual needs to see how they can um, both pursue their calling and maximise the outcomes um, uh, for them. Yeah. Uh, Alex Cook, anything further to add there? Just uh, another minute or so out to news. Yeah, well, look, as you say, and as Gavin points out, you know, pursuing opportunity, I think, is a great one. And the government is helping in this area. So what they've done is they're offering, um, you know, businesses small, um, sorry, increases in the tax deductibility of training and so forth, and also in tax deductibility of investing in technology. So I think both of those things uh, are great at the end of the day for us as individuals in society as people get more skilled up, more trained up, and of course, it's it's good for business. So it is it's, it is positive um, in, in that sense. I, I can see that as a, as a strength coming out of it. Okay, and the, so the, the other the other thing that um, is sometimes not factored into the wage rises is is the fact that we've had um, uh, a 05 percent increase in the superannuation guarantee, and we'll have another 05 percent in July as well. So that's a one percent rate. Generally, it's a wage rise uh, for individuals, but it probably doesn't actually show up in the in the stats because it's going to superannuation. Um, so it's also an interesting um, uh, thought that uh, the overall package is increasing, but it's not your take-home wage that's increasing. Uh, our two guests, Alex and Gavin, uh, let's turn our attention to uh, issues around interest rates. And we are ordinary Australians who have a mortgage, uh, might be thinking about the issues of last night's federal budget. Let me come to you, Alex Cook. Uh, interest rates. Uh, you've got some concerns here because there are some other indicators in the economy uh, that might point to what might be coming in the next little while. Mm, that's right. So look... The, obviously, when inflation becomes an issue, the talk becomes that interest rates will rise, um, and certainly because inflation is running hot in the Western world, so in cases like the US and UK, inflation is now at 40-year highs. Australia is still not too bad in the scheme of things, at around 3.5%. Um, but the, the general feeling is that interest rates will have to rise to try and bring that under control. Um, I'm not convinced that raising interest rates necessarily solves the inflation problem because I think a lot of those are global issues. Um, but what's been fascinating over the last couple of weeks is in the bond market. Now, when people think of um, investing, they tend to just think of the stock market. That's what makes the, you know, the headlines in the newspaper and graphs of rising and falling shares and so forth. Um, but a fascinating area is actually the bond market, which is you know, uh, predominantly lending money to governments or lending money to corporates. Uh, and bond yields over the last couple of weeks have been rising dramatically. Um, <clears throat> And so the bond market in Australia at the moment is essentially, because its yields have spiked so much, it's basically predicting that the cash rate in Australia will rise to 3% by the middle of next year. Now, to put that in context, the cash rate at the moment is just simply 0.1 of a percent. So for that to take place, 
the Reserve Bank pretty much has to put up interest rates uh, almost every month between now and the middle of next year. And we know that's not going to happen. The Reserve Bank has uh, no has not uh, verbalised that they have any intent to do that. And, of course, they'd be very reluctant to do that given the level of household debt in Australia is so high. And, you know, as we know, house prices shot up massively over the last 18 months. And so the central bank would be very cautious to put up rates too quickly. But the market, as in the bond market, is actually predicting they're going to rise significantly. So it's sort of a... um, there's a bit of a conundrum going on there as to what will actually happen. Um, but the context that I would give uh, listeners here is just simply the fact that we're really at the end of a interest rate cycle that's been trending down for 30 years. Some listeners may have had a home loan in 1990 when they were 18%. Um, but anyone who's taken them out in the last year or two, I mean, we have a mortgage arm to what we do, and we were doing home loans for people at under 2%. Uh, you know, it's breathtaking to think you could borrow money for a home at under 2%. So we're really coming to the end of that cycle now. And I think from here on, you would expect that rates will rise. And the banks are already putting up all their fixed rate loans as it is. So you can see that's already starting to be factored into mortgage rates. Um, but I think that the, the message for listeners here is, how are you going to be impacted if rates do rise? How is that going to impact your personal cash flow? And so the, the question I'd say to people is, you know, sit down and look at your home loan and say, if rates were to rise by, you know, you're currently paying, say, 2.5%, if they went to 4% or 4.5% on your home loan, how would that impact your personal cash flow? How is that going to impact your ability to live generously as a Christian and to be able to fund, you know, gospel ministry and to, you know, put your kids through school and all those things that we have to consider? Um, because I think it, it really is the sort of uh, the risk factor for Australian households will be interest rates. Um, as I say, I think Reserve Bank will be very cautious because uh, they'll be very uh, concerned not to want to upset or not upset but disrupt household cash flows too much. Gavin Martin, you're working on the coal face uh, with people and their finances. Is there a fear of interest rate rises? Because as Alex says, uh, the stimulus and sweeteners, perhaps fueling inflation and perhaps fueling uh, then interest rate rises. A uh, 3% doesn't sound much compared to that 18% uh, that Alex mentioned there. But is there a, a fear of interest rate rises, do you think, more broadly in the community? I'm only just starting to experience that from um, uh, clients recently. A young couple wanted to upsize a home. Uh, wife wanted to um, buy buy a larger home closer to the city. The husband was really starting to be concerned about it because if you model it on current interest rates, it was fine. Model it on uh, what Alex was talking about and a reserve bank target rate of 3%. And it wasn't fine. So people are really just starting to think that through. And it's really important because it can put people in really vulnerable positions if they do overcommit. And uh, the the 3% rate, that's the, that's the RBA's rate. Normally, it's like 2% above that that you would pay as, a, as an interest mm. rate. That 3% rate that the RBA um, is setting for... Uh, that, that Alex was talking about for next year, mid next year, that's um, not even uh, the neutral standing. The pre- previous neutral standing for the RBA was um, closer to 4.5%. Uh, and so they're suggesting that maybe 
three percent might be the new neutral standing. So ne neutral meaning that it's not stimulatory, it's not contractory. It's uh, it's basically just keeping things, uh, keeping the economy uh, travelling along uh, as it is. But yeah, I just uh, reinforce Alex's comments that uh, interest rates are low. Uh, if you have have the opportunity now, even though money is cheap, uh, yeah, do get ahead on the mortgage uh, if you can. And, of course, it's not the government that determines what the interest rates will be. It's the Reserve Bank. Uh, Alex Cook, what do you do with your home loan right now if you have those sorts of concerns, if you realise that there are some interest rate rises that are potentially on the way? Uh, what do you do with your home loan? Mm, look, there's a number of options available to you. Um, I think where Gab and I want to be careful here is we don't want to be seen to be trying to predict the future. You know, we're looking at it and saying, here are the risks. Um, but to me, uh, some options available to people. One is you can potentially fix fix your loan. Uh, and fixed loans at the moment, depending on which bank, are looking around sort of 2.7%. So you can still get very good deals if you were to fix your loan for two years. The advantage of fixing your loan is you're just giving yourself a bit of certainty. So that's that's the big attraction of it. Um, for those of you who still have variable loans, and some people you can split, split your loans, so you can have part variable, part fixed. Um, but the advantage of a variable loan is you can put extra repayments against it. And one of the things you know we generally encourage clients to do is to throw extra income against your home loan to pay it off as obviously as quick as you can. Uh, to me, I always say to people, the best home loan you ever have is the one you pay off the quickest. Um, and so throw extra money against a, a variable loan. There's also lots of great loan features these days, things like offset accounts and so forth, where you can put all your extra income in and you can put emergency funds in there, just so that way you're reducing your interest payable and building up a buffer. I think that's the message I'd want to say is try and build up yourself a buffer for for the coming couple of years. So that way when rates do rise, as they most likely will, um, you've got a bit of protection. You know, you've, you've, you've paid it down you've, um, and you've given yourself a buffer from those rate rises. So there, there's some options. If um, you do find yourself invulnerable, maybe you've done well on your house and you're thinking of downsizing, maybe it's now really the time to start thinking about um, you know, potentially selling places, particularly if you're feeling really stretched. You know, one of the things I say to people is you don't want your home loan to rule your life. You don't want it to impact your ability to do other things, to, to raise your family, to be generous and so forth. So if you're really already feeling the pressure now, then maybe is an opportunity here to, to get out before things get uh, much more challenging. Um, as I say, owning a home is a good thing, but you know, you don't want to make yourself a slave either. And that's certainly something the devil wants to do, make you a slave. It's one thing to own your home and have a mortgage. Uh, some people are saying, well, uh, I wish I had a mortgage. Uh, those first home buyers, and sometimes we're talking about younger Australians. There's some criticism. There wasn't too much in the budget for younger Australians. But first home buyers uh, had some uh, focus so far as uh, uh, some incentives there. Uh, Gavin Martin, are you across uh, the detail there from last night's budget around first home buyers? Yeah, there, there was an extension of the scheme to add an additional $10,000 for regional home purchases, uh, and it didn't need to be your first home. So uh, I, I think there was a quite look into the details, I'm not fully across it, but it might, might have been that you can't have owned a home for the last five years, but it's not your first home. I'm not sure whether it's trying to target um, the flood uh, victim areas where they might need to re rebuild 
Um, but I guess that is an opportunity for some people that uh, are needing uh, assistance getting into their first home or getting in or back into the, uh, um, the housing market. Um, it is, they've changed the name to it to a home guarantee scheme. And so it's allowing you to have only a 5% deposit and not pay the mortgage insurance. That's a one-off payment when you take out a, uh, a loan if you've got a low deposit. Um, normally would need to have, and Alex can correct me, but you know, uh, closer to 20% deposit. The, the government's sort of allowing, uh, guaranteeing that loan uh, on your behalf. And there's gonna be, um, I think there's normally 35,000 of these types of loans a, a year. And sometimes, uh, and there's a certain allocation to single parents. So those people that have uh, and I think you need to be officially divorced uh, to help those single parents uh, get back into the uh, to the housing market. Alex Cook, when it comes to first home buyers, uh, there needs to be some sort of incentive to get first home buyers into their first home. But I know that uh, over previous conversations we've had about these sorts of things, you're not always a big fan. Uh, what were your thoughts around uh, the government's uh, budgetary provision for first home buyers last night? Mm, look, I'm not a fan of these schemes at all. Uh, and really, just to give you, I guess, the political position here. So both sides of Parliament, whether it's, uh, you know, Liberal or Labor, they both state publicly that they want to improve housing affordability. That's, that's the message they want to get across. And they want to get the message across that we want to help people into the housing market. But the policies that are enacted by both sides, so it doesn't matter who you vote for, those policies are actually do the exact opposite to what they're stating. Now, the reason why that is the case, though, is because if you think about it from a government perspective, higher house prices have a number of benefits. So for the state governments particularly, they're dependent on stamp duty revenue, which, of course, at much higher prices, earns those state governments huge windfalls. And that's certainly happened over the last 12 months with stamp duty revenue. So it's not in government's interests to do the one thing that would actually benefit young people, and that is for house prices to come down. If you look at our house prices over a 50-year basis, they're pretty much double their long-term average. They historically sit around three times income, house prices. Now they're currently six times income, according to the Reserve Bank, and arguably much higher, depending on whose source of information you look at. Um, and so the problem with a scheme like this is what it's doing is, to me, it's bringing in vulnerable people into the housing market um, with little savings and maybe a little discipline to save. And what we're saying to, say, a single parent is you only have to put up 2% and then we'll lend you the money for home. Now, let's say they borrow half a million dollars and they only put in 2%. There, if house prices were to fall, particularly as rates rise, they could be in a situation of negative equity very, very quickly. Um, you know, housing downturns have happened before. It's not, it's not new. And say the house price falls 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever the figure is, these people who are single parents who are already vulnerable for all the other reasons, emotional things and all the things going on in their lives, are now very financially vulnerable as well. Likewise, even for couples that are borrowing 95%. Um, so I, I think these policies, A, they're designed just to really keep the housing market from collapsing, just keep it going, keep fueling it. Um, I don't believe they benefit young people in the slightest. Uh, I think they're, they're dangerous. 
Uh, and I think I would I would warn people, and certainly my, my own kids, just to be really wary of these things that really prop things up. Uh, I mean, yes, it's attractive that you don't have to pay lenders' mortgage insurance, um, but arguably that's unfair on taxpayers because the rest of us are wearing the risk. If these uh, borrowers end up defaulting, you know, two or three years down the track, rather than the bank wearing the risk historically, or the or the mortgage insurer, now we as a society wearing the risk of these of these people. So. I think um, these schemes, the best thing that could ever happen that we see in Australia is actually to allow a natural, the, the natural market to operate rather than all these schemes to keep it going. And the free market would bring prices down to reasonable levels over time. So both sides of politics do the same thing. <laughs> uh, right, everyone's guilty here uh, on every side of <laughs> politics. So governments actually, as uh, it's an interesting point you're making here, governments actually can't do the right thing, the moral thing. It'll always look as though they don't care if they don't provide those incentives uh, to make them look better. And uh, Gavin Martin, any thoughts here as to, you know, anything to add to what Alex is saying? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, uh, I agree with the, with the, with the viewpoints. Uh, the, the flip side is I often see... Um, uh, and my scenario is it's normally uh, my clients helping their kids get into the market. And I just see the, the main thing is that they need the boost to get into the market. And then they're actually probably paying less in mortgage than they were paying previously in rent. So I see that happen all the time and it's rewarding for the parents, rewarding for the kids. Um, if, if uh, those people that don't have parents um, to assist the, with the bank of mum and dad uh, and can get some other support in other ways, whether it's the home guarantee scheme or there's also another scheme called the First Home Saver Super Scheme where you can put $15,000 uh, a year into super and then you can use it to buy your first home. Um, whilst uh, I understand, Alex, your view that it... Um, that it just actually causes more of a problem. Uh, if the scheme's there, uh, I think utilise it. Um, um, so if you are looking to buy your first home, take advantage of each of these schemes. Um, maybe be careful with the home guarantee scheme with the low de deposit. Uh, but the first home saver super scheme, uh, it can it can get you, uh, you know, boost your um, your deposit so that you do have less uh, risk, uh, more of a top, more of a deposit when you do actually purchase your first home. Okay, let's come back to this $420 uh, that is uh, going to be uh, given to low and middle income earners and uh, we've been talking about this a little earlier. Uh, Gavin Martin, just staying with you on this for a few moments because uh, there, are some, uh, there are some things around the edges of that $420 that uh, don't come through in the initial announcement. What are your thoughts around that 420 yeah, as we approach the end of financial year, it's uh, coming up very quickly. Um, we often think about what strategies we can apply to uh, maximise our situation. And um, one of the common things that we often do is make superannuation contributions, uh, deductible superannuation contributions, and also uh, tax deductible giving to charitable organisations. And just the interesting way that they've structured the $420 low and middle income tax offset is that it's uh, based on earning on taxable income uh, so you are able to reduce your taxable income with uh, giving 
and uh, salary sacrifice or personal deductible contribution to super. So there, there could be, a, and, and the threshold is 126,000. So if your taxable income is less than 126,000, you'll get the full 420. If it's over 126,000, you'll miss out on it altogether. So you could potentially be on, your taxable income might be $127,000. If you gifted to a charitable organization $1,000, uh, it would save you, you know, $390 in tax and you'd get $420 in low and middle income tax offset. So you gift $1,000 and it would cost you less than $200. I know that's a unique particular scenario of the $127,000, but just think about the fact that if you could potentially get your taxable income under that uh, $126,000 threshold, it could be could benefit you and uh, benefit either your super or the charitable organisation you're wanting to support. Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting one because uh, it might be worth your while to just make sure you uh, you know look at those things carefully, and it might even be an incentive mm. to make a significant donation uh, if that's going to be right where you are on that uh, threshold. Hey, let's just take a quick call. James is in Kyabram in Victoria. Hi, James. Welcome. Hey, Neil. How are you? Very good, James. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, well, I've, uh, for me, I'm, uh, I'm going to share testimony with a lady. Uh, my body's a name. I was at a prayer meeting one time, and in the midst of it all, she gave thanks. And I'll tell you, that thanks never empowered me like so many others, because that lady's never tasted food in all her life, and she's in her later years. She's down volunteering at the Salvos today, but I am so grateful, Morrison. I'm so grateful. I never would have voted Labor, but I'm so grateful Scott Morrison's got in. He's done a great job in this season of, of absolute duress of different things coming against him and I pray for our government in uh, Deuteronomy 1.11 it says may the Lord God of your ancestors increase your you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised and I pray that over Scott Morrison but I pray it over Australia it's it's our family it's potential family in the spiritual realm but they're our family and I want to see uh, us get out of debt and I believe God can do it and I think with gratitude even as Corey Dean Pen- Ten Boom said they were thanking God for the fleas in the army barracks. And I met someone live who thanks God every day and, and, and has, has never tasted food. And I think oh, I've got no reason to not thank God. I've got so much to be grateful for, so many reasons to thank him for Australia and bless it a thousandfold, Lord, all they're giving, even not just the, 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 uh, the, the one they're giving, the, the one-offs, but the continual support to the, uh, those that are unemployed and those that are in need and, and in uh, you know, different crisis situations. Hey, James, great thought there. And interestingly, if you, you know, you take any sort of partisan nature out of the equation, uh, Alex Cook, uh, we're Australians. And here we are in a nation where we have these wonderful virtues and uh, things can look good. And while we're identifying some things that are good and things that are not so good out of the budget and identifying where that might lead us into the future, we certainly can be thankful that we live in a a wonderful nation like Australia and perhaps give thanks to God, just as James suggests. uh, Anything to add to what James is saying? Oh, absolutely. Look, I think, firstly, the two great things out of what he just said were, to me, one is the, the issue of gratitude. Um, you know, Australia is a very blessed nation, and, and notwithstanding some of the challenges that are upon us at the moment, uh, it really is a blessed nation compared to so many other parts of the world. 
Um, and the second thing which he also pointed out, which I think is so critical, um, really always, is the need to pray for our leaders. You know, it doesn't matter which side of politics they're on, it's so important that we pray because our prayers are powerful. You know, as a, as a believer, I believe that prayer makes a difference. Uh, it, it is influential in the spiritual realm and therefore flows through into the political realm, which affects, you know, people's lives. So it's, yeah, it's important that we, we give thanks and it's so important that we continue to pray um, for our leaders, um, for wh- whoever's in power. So we see policies um, that really help us as a society to, uh, to continue to, um, to do well. Well, James, thank you so much for your call. And uh, time has run out, gentlemen. It's just been great. And for listeners who've listened to this conversation through the last hour, you'll recognise there are some dimensions here you won't hear anywhere else. And for those who are interested in having a Christian perspective, a biblical Christian outlook on how you might look at uh, federal budgets, uh, this conversation might be something that you might like to uh, pass on, a podcast to others that you know will be interested in a different dimension on how you look at the finances of a nation. Our two special guests, Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth With Purpose. You can connect with Alex at wealthwithpurpose.com. And Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth, based in Melbourne, has office two in Sydney. Uh, Gavin is, uh, you can connect with Gavin at cornerstonewealth.com.au. To Alex Cook uh, and to Gavin Martin, thank you, gentlemen, for taking some time to share your thoughts and your hearts with us around last night's budget. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.